This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Chris Woods started his career at the Royal Botanical Gardens Kew, where he was trained as a working gardener. He came to the United States in 1981 and has since enjoyed a long career in public horticulture, including many influential years at Chanticleer Garden in Pennsylvania. He has a new book out entitled Garden Lust, a botanical tour of the world's best new gardens from Timber Press. Garden lust is something of a play on the concept of wanderlust, and Chris joins us today to share more about his work and the book's highlighted gardens. Welcome, Chris. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, Jennifer. Thank you. So your career has spanned a good many regions and jobs. Describe for us your current work in plants, Chris. Well, my my current project comes out of uh, the book that's just been published, as you mentioned, Garden Lust, and my publish my publisher, Timber Press, uh, seemed to be so enthusiastic about Garden Lust that we discussed me writing a second and a third book, and so far um, I have started on a second book for Timber Press, which is about natural areas around the world. I think my publisher, recognizing that I was uh, terminally restless, um, decided to send me around the world several times um, uh, so that I could write um, about areas that are conservation hotspots and specifically um, characters within those hotspots uh, iconic trees, iconic plants um, in general, and uh, and our action and reaction to their potential endangerment. So I started that uh, relatively recently, and that will be a three-year project. And um, I will travel around the world a number of times doing what I like to do. Let's go back just a little bit. Tell me about your earliest influences that might have led you to be this person who loved plants and travel. I was born in London, and I was born not far from Regent's Park in London, one of the major parks, and not far from Hampstead Heath, a wild area or wildish area of North London. And as I grew up, my father and I used to go for walks on a Sunday, either to the more formal Regent's Park or to the wilder Hampstead Heath. And that certainly was a great uh, kind of area of recreation for me and my father. I wasn't particularly interested in sports. I didn't do the kind of standard things that many people did. But um, so that influence was profound, even though it was in the middle of central London. But, you know, growing up English uh, um, that time, you either drank beer or you gardened. And I didn't drink beer, so I went and gardened. 
and um, my grand my grandmother had a lovely garden in suburban London and every year my parents and I we would go to a small village about a hundred miles north of London and spend the week uh, wandering around picking blackberries or picking mushrooms and me fishing and just uh, developing a kind of nascent interest in natural history. But I never expected to, to be a gardener uh, in terms of a profession. I mean, I grew up in the late 60s and 70s, and like many of my friends, I wanted to be a pop star. <laughs> and, but the, the one problem with that was that I couldn't play very well. And uh, I did. I was in a number of bands and so forth, and and just um, awful music, the world's worst pop music. Um, and so I was back in London, and I had decided that I wanted to go to the University of Sussex and uh, read English because I wanted to be a writer, which was as fictional as being a pop star in those days. But <laughs> I wanted to take the summer off. In fact, I wanted to take the year off before I went to school, back to school. And a friend of mine was a gardener at Kew, and he said, Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. And he said, why don't you come and work uh, as a gardener at Kew uh, for a few months and be outside, enjoy the sunshine, you know, the smell of the plants, et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't that far from my home. And I thought, yeah, that would be a great idea, it's essentially taking the summer off and being outside. So... I applied for a job at Kew, and the title, which I thought was rather optimistic at the time, was Improver, which is a rather Victorian word for an apprentice. So I interviewed, and I got the job instantly, and I started working at Kew, and, and in the first week, something happened. And I can't say that it was a decision of mine, um, uh, it, I, it almost felt like it was decided for me, but I realized that I wanted to stay longer than just a few months, and I wanted to be a gardener, and I, and I really enjoyed the physical uh, um, exercise, but I enjoyed the, the smell, the sensory impact, the sensual impact of, of gardening in general, of mowing lawns and spreading manure and clipping. We spread a lot of manure at Q. <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed that, and I really enjoyed the community there. And what was great as an improver was that I could ask somebody something about plants, and they were usually one of the world's best and most knowledgeable people about those plants. So in, this, in a way, I became addicted. Uh, I became attracted and addicted to gardening. And given that my musical career had floundered uh, and I thought uh, writing should happen later, which was uh, uh, a, a prophecy, I suppose, I um, decided to continue being a gardener. And so I spent some time at Kew. And then I moved to North Wales and worked at Port Marion in North Wales on the Welsh coast where there are wonderful, huge Himalayan rhododendrons. And then I worked in a number of other places uh, for the National Trust uh, down in Sussex and uh, had a good long career uh, in England. And um, by then I was an established gardener and uh, beginning to be promoted as head gardener and so forth. And giving talks and writing little pieces on plants. 
Mm-hmm. And when you first started at Q, were there particular areas of the garden that you were assigned to, or were you as an improver sort of across the board a little bit of everywhere? I was an improver in the decorative department, which was then the, and I don't I have no idea what it's called now, but it was the area that put on the displays such as the seasonal displays of tulips and then summer plants, summer annuals, and then chrysanthemums in front of the palm house and down the, the uh, mm. broad walk. And uh, I think one of the first things I did uh, was to plant 14,000 tulips which I actually thought was an appalling thing to do, to be honest. Um, uh, But what was nice was that I could wander away, which I did, um, from the tulips and other things that I was planting and look at when the rhododendrons were blooming and I would start to photograph them and take notes. And then when it was cold, I would go into the tropical houses and sit under the plants and take notes. And I developed this relationship, this love affair, with plants, uh, which was, I think, mutual in some ways. So even though I was was enslaved to decorative horticulture, my mind was already wandering uh, away from that style. Uh, but it did teach me a great deal. It taught me the basics of what gardening is, and it began to teach me a little bit about color combinations and uh, design. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then... How, so how old were you when you first started there at Q? Oh, I, you know, uh, it, uh, four years old, I think. I mean, I, it felt like such a long time ago. <laughs> I, was, I was, what, 18, I think, 18, 19, yes. And then how old were you when you were uh, recruited over to the United States to take your first big job here? I was in my... Um, I think I was in my early 30s, and I decided um, that instead of being working for the National Trust, and I had the prospect of a long career with the National Trust, but I was restless, and uh, the United Kingdom seemed terribly small to me. And I'd been traveling in the... I first came to the United States for six months of traveling around in 1977, and I'd been going backwards and forwards on vacation to the coming here to the United States on vacation. And then in 1981, I decided to move to the U.S. Um, and I, my first job was uh, at Cornell uh, in Ithaca, New York, um, as a cooperative extension agent, which, again, I thought was rather optimistic, given that I hadn't a clue uh, really where I was and what the plants were and what was really going on. But I, I helped uh, the uh, cooperative extension uh, and gave really bad advice to a number of homeowners in Ithaca, New York. Um, and then I, um, you, you know, we move either largely because of love or either for it or against it. And I met somebody and got married and we moved down to um, Pennsylvania and I applied for a job at this private estate in Wayne, PA, called Chanticleer. Mm-hmm. So that move from the United Kingdom in 
1981 is one sort of an interesting cultural moment in the U.S., though the beginning of the 80s and then into to the 90s, of course. And that transition just in climate as well as culture was a huge one, Chris, to move from the United Kingdom to then become an advisor for the cooperative extension in upstate New York is is quite a switch. What did you think one of the horticultural shift for yourself, but then two, the cultural shift of the difference between the way Americans garden and value and view and talk about gardening and horticulture versus what you would come from in the United Kingdom? Well, I, I think there are two responses in a way when you don't know anything, where you don't know where you are and you don't know what's going on. And one of those is to kind of uh, pull in yourself and uh, be worried about it. And the other is to expand and say, I don't know anything and I'm going to find out. And fortunately for me, I had the second aspect in my character. So I was thrilled to be in upstate New York. I was thrilled to see thousands and thousands of acres of maples and um, uh, native plants and, and goldenrod in the, in the autumn and butterflies and birds that I'd never seen before. And uh, obviously a culture that I had some familiarity with because American culture was very dominant in the UK during the 60s and 70s. And so it was attractive to me there. But, um, you know, I've been here, uh, living here uh, in the United States since 1981, and I still don't really understand it. Um, um, and I'm not sure I ever will in the way that somebody who is born and raised in a country, every expatriate that I've ever met always feels a slight dissonance in a way. They never feel entirely at home. And that may have given rise to my wanderlust. Uh, it gives rise also to my great affection for the natural history of this country. Uh, which far exceeds the political history of this country. But um, I, uh, I was just thrilled to be in such a larger space. And it's a truism and it's a, perhaps a cliche to say that the, this uh, country has a character that is more optimistic, the can-do attitude, as opposed to the can't-do attitude in the UK. And um, whether that's actually true or not, I don't know. But for me, it was very much a can-do kind of country. So even though I didn't really know anything, um, by the time I got to Chanticleer, which was a private estate, and I was a gardener at a private estate, and beginning to be ambitious and having visions of design for Chanticleer, and then fortunately... Um, becoming the executive director and chief designer of Chanticleer after the death of the owner and having the resources and the imagination to create Chanticleer, it was fundamentally, I dreamt it up. And mm. what I found was a number of people saying, um, you can't do that here. Um, you can't grow that here. Um, you, it doesn't work here. And it was one of the benefits of a kind of optimistic ignorance 
was to say, of course I can. And so I did. And I started to make Chanticleer, and then I started to do what was even more intelligent, which is to hire the best people to help me make Chanticleer. And, and you know, Chanticleer is now off and running and is rather well regarded in, um, you know, in garden circles. And that, I was at Chanticleer for 20 years. Yeah. And that whole progression of events in your life, in many ways, at least to me, sitting on the outside, looking back at the way you've just described it, really, in in some way, is just a personal example of what you are then, the skills you are then going to bring to bear on the book Garden Lust as you get to it. And And by that, I mean your ability to move from one gardening culture to another and look at it sort of analytically and look at it sympathetically. And then to also have that experience of one of the oldest botanic gardens in the world at Kew. And then you're beginning to develop a brand new public garden out of what was once a public estate gives you some really interesting insights into what makes a garden, what makes a gardener, what makes a creative imagination, what elements go into it. D- did you um, did you ever imagine that you would you would travel around the world to look at all the different botanic gardens for a purpose? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I always expected to travel around the world many times. Now, whether that was to specifically look at gardens for a specific project or just for pleasure, um, it, it was, uh, I was, I was, you know, I could quote, was, I was born in the back of a Greyhound bus, which is not true, of course, but um, I was born a wandering man. And um, I, I know that that is in my family's history, and I know it's in my kind of behavioral DNA. I get restless after about three weeks at home and uh, start, if I can't travel, I start looking at travel sites and places that I will travel to. So, um the book itself, Garden Lust, is actually a culmination of an entire lifetime of work and living. And there are many levels to it, and we can talk about the book a bit later, but fundamentally, fundamentally, all of me is somewhere in this book. And it may be underneath certain layers, uh, but for me, when I actually read my own book, it is also biographical, although it doesn't at first appear to be so. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with intrepid and restless plantsman Chris Woods. Having started his career as an improver in decorative planting at the Royal Botanical Gardens Kew in England, Chris came to the United States where he led the famed Chanticleer Garden from being a private estate to a beloved public garden in Pennsylvania. He has, for the past decade, worked at a variety of public garden endeavors almost as final preparation for the writing of his new book, Garden Lust, an armchair tour of text and photographs of 50 of his favorite new gardens, public, private, and corporate from around the world. Chris's wanderlust is our reward in garden lust. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. 
The autobiography of ourselves is in our very gardens. As Chris says in his book, each part of me is somewhere in there in the book. I feel like this about my garden, don't you? For the flowers I grow, the herbs I cook with, my human history is there in the garden if you know how to decipher it. I like very much how Chris talks about working to include not just the biodiversity of plants in this book, but to look closely at the diversity of we humans. Because whenever we plant in or harvest from the soil of the earth, you are very truly a citizen of the world. And as Chris remarks, the garden is a medium that reaches around the world and can cross all divides. As I speak to you today, my region is recovering from a very recent and destructive wildfire known as the Camp Fire here in Butte County, California. That too now is part of my autobiography and the autobiography of my garden. For more information about my garden and the autobiography of me, my past, my present, my ghosts who live in the garden with me, make sure to take a look at the November A View From Here newsletter up at the website now. To subscribe, follow the links, and you will receive A View From Here monthly. Also in the month of November, I'm really proud to have a partnership program with womanswork.com, whose garden gloves and other gear and gifts is of the highest quality for women and men's gloves. Now through December 3rd, Woman's Work, that's W-O-M-A-N-S-W-O-R-K dot com, is offering Cultivating Place listeners a 10% holiday discount off their entire order, including free shipping for orders over $40 just by using the code WW10 when you check out. For every order placed, a generous donation comes back to Cultivating Place from Woman's Work. Their motto, Strong Women Building a Gentle World, which is championed by their president, Dorian Winslow, is one I get behind every gardening day of my life. I think you all do too. That's womanswork.com. Enter the code WW10 at checkout for your 10% discount and support the production of Cultivating Place. Now, back to our conversation with Chris Woods about his new book, Garden Lust. What you were saying before about being, when you relocated to Cornell and were was working as a cooperative extension agent, that natural tendency of gardeners to learn their new climate, learn their new plant palette, learn uh, that just takes place by virtue of being a gardener and then to share it with others just makes sense. And likewise, when we travel, we like to see gardens and we like to learn from them and take notes from them and experience them. And this is exactly what you are, are helping many people to do with, with this current book. So you're at Chanticleer for, for 20 years and Talk about the transition from there to the world of California before you get started on this big project. Well, you know, I'd always been attracted to California, and that was it was again when I was a, a, a you know a wannabe pop star in in London, and I was very attracted to to uh, California music and the hippie movement then. And you know, not that I wanted to be a flower child in San Francisco, but I was particularly when I had 
traveled around the United States in 1977, it was the West and the Western landscapes that attracted me the most. And so I had a kind of yearning uh, to move West um, and uh, eventually did and um, was invited to become a vice president uh, of horticulture at the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden. And uh, it was involved in a project that, in fact, didn't turn out, but introduced me to the flora of the West. And that's when I fell in love with the West, and I'm still mm. in love with the West. And you can say that these were decisions, but I can't really convince myself that I've ever made a decision on that scale. It's, and it's funny that the book is called Garden Lust and Wanderlust and lust in the, in the sense of being attracted. And I've just always felt that I, was, I went where I was attracted and I went where I was called. Um, not that I see any grand plan in this, um, but uh, the West and the Western landscape and the California landscape in particular seduced me, if you want to use that word, and it mm -hmm. worked. And I worked on this project in, for the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden, and then I was headhunted up to Vancouver to be the director of Van Dusen Botanical Garden which was a lovely experience, except that I felt Vancouver was far too north for me, and I felt like I was gonna fall off the edge of the world. Um, and then I was uh, invited to become the director of the Mendocino Coast Botanical Garden, um, and I did that uh, for a while, but I was beginning to want to, you know, I, my career was in, certainly at a mature point, um, and, um, I was, you know, run, I was a director and I had responsibilities that were less interesting than design and um, so forth um, and boards and, and fundraising and so forth, which is what many people, many people in the botanic garden world have to do. And many of them do it well, but that was less interesting to me. So uh, I just, um, I fled to Mexico uh, because I was so hungry for color, and I went to live in Mexico for a while and absorbed some color and came back to Southern California and um, did some work for the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society on the uh, flower show that happens every March and was invited to help uh, design a, a, a central exhibit that was based on Britain I went out and helped them, and they managed to persuade me to stay. And I took over a, a place called Meadowbrook Farm, which is part of Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. Mm. And I spent some time there. And But California was very strong and calling me and calling me. And so I moved back um, to uh, California, and I now live in the Bay Area. But it, And it took me about 10, 10 years after Chanticleer to kind of recover from Chanticleer because Chanticleer was such a pinnacle and such a strong experience. And so these other jobs that I had, I think, um, were floundering around a little bit. And it took me 10 years to be liberated um, uh, from Chanticleer. Um, 
in a way a bit like being divorced from Chanticleer and it took me 10 years to get over the divorce. And then one day, and I happened to be in the Andes, in Chile, in the Andes, and I was, um, uh, I had my feet in a very cold river and I was staring at the Andes and I had a very profound experience of freedom, absolute freedom. And um, it was just an extraordinary experience. And then just soon after that, I... Uh, um, I had was in discussion with publishers, and this book that I have just written uh, came up, and I started writing this book or researching for this book. Mm-hmm. And what a fantastic way to to put all of that experience to work, because you have seen so many different shapes and sizes and kinds of gardens in different gardening areas. Mm-hmm. So you have so much history to, 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 to draw from in evaluating the, the ones that you then bring into this book. So you, you decide to put together a book on gardens. Tell us about the process for, for your criteria. You, one of the things you say in the introduction is that our view, our interest, and our understanding of what gardens and landscapes can accomplish have changed radically in the past few years. What makes modern landscape design different from most other forms of contemporary art is our growing understanding. And then you go on to talk about environmental impacts as well as other things. But I'd love to talk, because you have this overview, as you're putting together your list of gardens to include in this book, what is your criteria? How do you how do you decide it and which which gardens make the cut? I do write about a number of botanic gardens, but the book is also about private gardens, about corporate gardens, about kind of slightly natural areas. Once once the the whole publishing wheels started to turn, I went and researched uh, online, and I came up with a list of about 150 contemporary landscapes, contemporary gardens that around the world that were interesting to me. Um, and I did this through all kinds of interesting um, new design uh, websites and so forth. Plus, uh, um, you know, garden people are a relatively small family, so I talked to everybody, and um, those who would continue to talk to me said I should go here and I should go there, and I should look at this and that. So I eventually had, I whittled it down to a list of 120 gardens. And uh, again, they were public, they were private, corporate, and so forth. They had a great variety, and I wanted to be sure that there was a variety of gardens in this book. So I uh, said to my publisher, I have a list of 120 gardens. And she said, well, that's far too many. And I said, well, we should do two volumes. And there was absolute silence on the other end of the phone. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, so (laughs) it turned into, I whittled it down. And in fact, um, I whittled it down to 55 gardens. And I wrote 55 pieces, 55 chapters, if you will. And then, such as the process of bookmaking uh, in terms of size and space and so forth, 
uh, when it came down to it, uh, it, it includes now 50 gardens and the five had to be um, eliminated. But I, 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 there were a number of criteria that are listed in the book and you know, one of them is beauty. They had to be, and it sounds odd to be talking about beauty in application to gardens because we assume that gardens are beautiful. But I wanted to talk to people who created gardens with the intent of making beauty, to uplifting our spirit, if you want to call it that, and um, to, 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 in a sense, to make the world a better place through beauty. Um, and I also wanted to explore areas that were conserving and protecting rare and endangered plants because so many plants are in serious trouble and we are experiencing substantial extinction of natural flora. I wanted to explore um, new ways of designing, new ways of thinking. Uh, one of them, not so new now, but still contemporary, is the whole prairie style, the whole naturalistic style um, of, of planting. Um, and um, I was also looking for character. And character in the garden, and even eccentricity in garden design, but also gardening is about plants and people. And I am attracted to eccentric people. And so I wanted to find characters that I could, human characters that I could write about that would be fun. And I did. I met a lot of really crazy people out in the world who were just <laughs> crazy about plants and talked about plants for hours and hours, mostly because we were over dinner and perhaps drinking too much, but um, who were just so obsessed with plants and design. And uh, th it was as much their life as my life. And so I found so many brothers and sisters in horticulture. And we could speak, even though we didn't necessarily speak the same language, we could speak the same language based on our love of plants. And mm -hmm. that's how the book got going. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. I am joined today by plantsman Chris Woods. His peripatetic ways have led to a long career in noticing and appreciating the character and eccentricities of people and the gardens they create. His new book, Garden Lust, takes readers on a tour around the world of 50 intriguing new gardens. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's me. So here's what got me in this recent section of my conversation with plantsman Chris Woods. That among his criteria for the gardens to include in the book were character and eccentricity, as applied to both plants plus people. How perfect is that? Perfect. Because how many picture-perfect gardens have you seen in photos? And how many have you seen in real life? A couple of times I may have seen a picture-perfect garden when some poor soul has just about killed themselves for the garden tour coming through, but 
In those moments, I've also sort of felt like I'm walking through a still life. Give me a garden with character and a side of eccentricity, and I want to throw myself in a chair and enjoy a glass of wine and commune with the gardener there. Give me that garden any day. Character and eccentricity, it's what makes it home and human. In the introduction to Garden Lust, Chris Woods writes, I've asked myself what forms gardens can take now, what needs must they fulfill, and what the indicators are of how garden design will progress as the century advances. Each garden he selected for inclusion in this book, quote, answers one or more of these questions in a significant way. Many new important gardens have been created in the past 18 years, but which ones successfully illustrate possibility? Question mark, and end quote. And possibility builds character. That's my thought for the day. And on this Thanksgiving day in the United States, I'm at home right now congratulating my garden on her beloved character and her engaging eccentricities, including all the ghosts that come out this time of year that I introduced you to in this last month's A View From Here newsletter. Because we spend way too much time telling these important spaces that they aren't quite good enough, that we need to tidy them up or fix them just over here. Don't you think? From your one potted plant on the windowsill to your few pots on the back steps, or to the larger garden or front yard that you might be lucky enough to have, go out and remind the soil and plants and sky that are your view and which all together keep you sane and bring you joy. Go out, tell them just how damn thankful you are for them. On a more personal note, in the last two weeks, my region has been devastated by a wildfire called the Campfire. Many, many people have lost their homes, their gardens, their view sheds. We will do everything in our power to help bring back the gardens and landscapes of our region as we move forward. Please stay tuned for how Cultivating Place will be able to help. Thank you, and we are with you in your sorrow and your loss. Now, back to our armchair tour and in-depth look, including beautiful photos of exciting new gardens around the world featured in Garden Lust. There's 50 gardens, um, and how many countries, continents included in that? Well, there aren't any gardens in Antarctica, so I'll miss that. Um, but I did travel to six continents, and... Um, uh, the obvious ones, because I live in California, were um, ones in the United States, and that's where I started. And I um, actually, one of the ones that I discovered, um, which is now well known, is the Naples Botanical Garden in Florida. And a friend of mine uh, was the director, he's since retired. And I went down there and started to. Uh, interview everybody and photograph every plant and that became one of the first stories and then another friend of mine created the uh, botanical garden in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico and I spent some time down there which is delightful um, and then it just kind of kept going and um, 
the, the, the criteria is that the gardens should be had should have been created this millennium that is in the last 16 17 years but um, not entirely in that one of the gardens that I chose is the Huntington Botanical Garden down in Los Angeles and as that's an old garden but they had just put in a Chinese garden a large Chinese garden and I was interested in that in terms of and it's a traditional Chinese garden but I was interested in terms of how they would adapt that to Southern California but also I was writing about biodiversity, that is, the diversity of plants and the diversity of life. But I'm also writing about ethnic diversity, human diversity. And one of the valuable things of the Chinese garden at the Huntington Botanical Garden is that it attracts the largest, I think, the largest Asian population in the United States, uh, Los Angeles, the greater Los Angeles area being so populated. Uh, with such and so there was a cultural connection there and that is also what interested me greatly was the was human culture and ethnic diversity and uh, globalism and um, all of those kind of world things that even though I am an American citizen and um, so forth I see no question I see myself as a citizen of the world um, and so I wanted to meet people around the world who were doing these things. Um, and so I used, in many ways, I used the gardens as a medium to reach people from other places. Yeah. And I think the line of inquiry throughout the book uh, into the ethnobotany of of the gardens being represented is one of the most compelling. And that that human connection makes it very personal no matter who you are reading it, I think. Well, I, I, I agree, and it was the personal side of it that, that while I was, do, I mean, I was working on so many levels, but when I was, I spent some time in the country of Laos, Laos in, in a town called Luang, Luang Prabang, uh, the, the only botanic garden there, and um, I went there four or five times, five times, and one of the areas of the garden is the ethnobotanical garden, and it's, it, there are signs in Lao and in English about what this plant does, and they're very basic and very brief. But then you realize that the vast majority of the Lao uh, population uses these plants on a daily basis for medicinal needs uh, as well as dietary and culinary and um, that in fact up until recently most of us most of the world used plants um, for medicine and um, not then then you take the medicine and then you learn that they also use it for magic and magic rituals and, and religious and or spiritual uh, rituals. And um, one thing I noticed in Luang Prabang is that to get to the garden, you have to take a boat up the Mekong. And on the prow of the boat is a little conifer in a pot. And that is on all of the boats, on the, on the, on the prows of the boats in the Mekong, and that's to keep the water dragons away. 
And it's actually very effective because many times I went up and down the river, I never encountered a water dragon. So it works. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we're talking about basic plants for basic things, contraception or, or birthing or... or uh, um, uh, just dental care um, and these basic human things and also to ease the di- the dying of the old these from birth to death people use these plants as their medicine and I found that extraordinary um, you know as a westerner as a modern westerner to know to find out that this was their basic medicine and it reminds us how not very far removed even in in the you know so-called in industrial first world, we're not that far removed from it. It's often obscured by pharmaceutical companies or the medical care system, but much of what we use in healing still and in med- the medical foundation is still plant based. And I think there's a lovely tie-in between the impulse to create these gardens, whether they're private or corporate or public gardens and this sense of globalism because, of course, all of our, most of our gardens, especially our public gardens, are based on the ability of humans to move plants around the world and share them with each other. Yes, and I think, you know, having been trained first at Kew, which was an international garden where so many plants from around the world came in and were researched and then coming to uh, create gardens in the United States where I wasn't specifically interested in in just native plants. I, I wanted the whole palette. But then going to Santa Barbara, which is California native plants, and then learning that mm-hmm. side. Um, and I think that uh, whole range of plants is fascinating and the whole debate of using native plants or not using native plants it, to me, that's irrelevant. We use plants. Uh, we may have gardens that um, are strictly native plants. One of my favorite gardens in the book, and I will be there quite soon, is one in New Zealand called Parapuma. And it is a formal garden of a very Italianate design with a central axis and side axes. Um, but it is uh, consists of uh, New Zealand native plants only, um, and many, most of the New, Ze- New Zealand flora is tends to be evergreen and not excessively flowery or brightly flowery. Um, so it could be an Italian garden, except that it's wild because it's on the coast of um, the South Island, and instead of a statue at the end of the avenue, there's a mountain. And they, <laughs> instead of boxwoods, there are nagayo, these, these wonderful uh, New Zealand native shrubs. And um, that uh, fascinated me in that I had kind of grown up in America with the idea that native plants have to be in wild gardens or prairie mm. gardens. Um, and I found the formal use of native plants to be completely fascinating. And I fell in love with that garden and the gardeners uh, who designed it. Um, but on the other hand, there, was a, there is another garden in um, 
the opposite in, in many ways, New Jersey, um, called Federal Twist that I, that I write about, which is very much a kind of ornamental grass, prairie style, new, whatever you call it, new perennial style, uh, designed by uh, James Golden, who I greatly admire. Um, and uh, it's very rough and very wild and very secret. And I found that to be extremely attractive, too, in the way I also found him and his story attractive. Why do we do the things we do? And in my book, I explain to some degree why James's garden feels so secret. So going from the formal native plant garden to a very informal mixture of native and other plants, uh, in New Jersey, this range of design and then to corporate gardens, to the tallest vertical garden in the world, which is in Sydney, um, to an English border in a garden in Hokkaido, Japan. Uh, the, the, you know, the range was as broad as I, I could imagine it to be, and it turned out that way. Well, and it to me, there was um, just speaks the whole the whole book and the range of the gardens and the range of themes that you interweave throughout each story all come back to a sentence in the introduction that you say along the lines of the whole book is a love letter to the world and I, I feel this about gardens in general that they are acts of love this tending of the ground for whatever myriad reasons we have as humans to do this and this is a beautiful a beautiful overview of a wide range of spaces one of the one of the insights that you also have through through this is this contemporary trend we have in which corporations are taking on sort of a role in creating garden spaces, landscaped spaces with the resources that royalty or governments or churches may have had in in previous times. And I thought that was a really fascinating trend that you focused in on. Well, I think it's because we demand more and we should demand more and we should demand beauty and uh, a and if in our working environment uh, it should be a good working environment and if i'm working in a large corporate office and i want to take my cup of coffee and get some sunlight uh, and sit out and relax and get away from the computer for at least a few minutes do not do i not want to do that in a beautiful space a place that mm. i can relax and um, in a sense download my own self um, and I think that is, incre- is of increasing importance in our uh, world of phones and pads and computers and so forth, uh, where we need to stop just for a moment and smell that flower or hear the wind in the grass or just feel the sun on our cheeks. And those are my whole mission in life, if I ever had an educational mission in my career, was to tell people, just go outside. 
Anything beyond that is fancy stuff. But just go outside. Now, if you want to take it further, go outside and visit a garden. Go outside and create a garden. Travel the world and see all the gardens that you can. Life is short, after all. But the point of the book is of, yes, it's a love letter. Um, and it's, that's where it's personal, in that it's my love letter to the planet and, and my love letter to my family of gardeners, professional and, and uh, um, amateur. And, you know, I, I wrote a, in, the, in the introduction or a dedication for the book, if I could quote this, and I wrote, and for the gardeners of the world, you with the crazy eyes and rough hands, you who are so much in love with growing things, you artists and scientists, poets and painters, protectors and advocates, you who fall in love again and again. And that's what I mean. That's what it's all about, this book. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Chris Woods. It's been a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's my distinct pleasure. Thank you so much. A native of England, but now a United States citizen, Chris Woods started his career at the Royal Botanical Gardens, Kew, where he was trained as a practical gardener working as an improver. He came to the United States in 1981 and was, until April 2003, director and chief designer of Chanticleer Garden in Pennsylvania. After 20 years creating Chanticleer, he became vice president for horticulture and external operations for the Santa Barbara Botanical Garden, and in 2006 was appointed director of the Van Dusen Botanical Garden in Vancouver, Canada. While pleased to be in Canada, his heart yearned for California, and in January 2008, he was appointed executive director of the Mendocino Coast Botanical Garden. Chris now lives in Benicia, California, and is the Advancement Advisor for the Flora of North America Association. His new book, out now from Timber Press, Garden Lust, celebrates some of the best new contemporary gardens around the world. To learn more about purchasing the book through IndieBound and supporting the production of Cultivating Place at the same time, head over to cultivatingplace.com and see this week's episode notes. I'll end by reiterating Chris's mission in life, in his work, which can be distilled down to its essence as this. Just go outside. Go outside and visit a garden. Go outside and create a garden. Travel the world and see all the gardens and meet the gardeners. Life, after all, is short. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. To make your tax-deductible contribution of support to Cultivating Place, follow the support links at the top right-hand corner of any page on cultivatingplace.com. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To read more about and see many photos from Garden Lust, head to this week's episode notes at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.
Oh, 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 oh,